Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today's guest is Nelson Chu, the founder and CEO of Percent.com. Percent is a powerful platform for the credit markets. We talked about the credit markets. We talked about the debt markets, venture debt, credit lending, how the money flows through the whole system. Nelson is incredibly knowledgeable about this, and I find it fascinating because it's, you know, five plus trillion dollar market and growing and not a lot of people know how it all works. So we peel back the onion to discuss the credit markets. We touched on some crypto and we talked about percent. So awesome conversation. Second time Nelson is joining the podcast. So hope you enjoy. Here's Nelson Chu. Nelson, I'm excited to keep chatting with you. This is our second time, second time on the show for you. Why don't we kick it off with what we were talking about pre-show? So you guys recently changed the name, moving from cadence to percent. And then just, you know, for to remind me and then people listening, just describe like briefly what you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me back. I don't yeah. know how many people get the privilege of coming back twice, uh, but very, very much appreciated. Always good to catch up. Uh, so it's been a good run since we last spoke. I think it's almost like two years and change at this point, give or take, since our last episode. And it's been uh, a lot of changes on our side as well. So we used to be called Cadence. We are now called Percent. We can definitely talk about that and sort of why we changed our name. But just to give a refresher to the audience here who is listening in, Percent is the modern credit marketplace, right? And so when we focus on things like private credit, things like small business lending, consumer loans, factor receivables, things like that, we help make the $7 trillion market that much more efficient for the borrowers who need debt capital, the underwriters who create these investment products off of that debt, and then the investors who want to earn a return by investing in these products. Everything was done via Excel, phone calls and emails before Percent came around. And now a billion dollars later, thanks to us, I think we're making this ever so slightly better. So we're really excited for everything we've done wow. in the past few years. So it was all run on Excel in the background? Well, it didn't say it. Yeah. yeah. What were you doing? What, what was actually happening in the background? Like, what was the process like? So when we first started Cadence Now Percent, we were actually just building a, what we'd like to think, a better alternative investment platform. And so we were creating products that were, you know, pretty short duration, good for investors to invest in that were under one year. They had low minimums, like 500 bucks. You could actually just almost try before you buy, essentially. And then we had good yield, right? Nine to 16%. And we thought, cool. Good company to start with, good idea. Let's see how it goes. And so in that instance, in this three-sided market I had just mentioned around borrowers who need debt, underwriters who structure it, and investors who invest in it, we were the underwriter, right? We were kind of sitting in the middle of creating these products. And as we're going through this process, we were thinking, 
goodness gracious, this is so broken. There is no tech to speak of in this space. We were building our own order book management systems because as investors were placing bids, we were just tracking it in a Google sheet, which is crazy. And then as we were kind of sending out compliance questionnaires to ensure these borrowers are adhering to all the rules we had set for them, we sent out type form requests. And then as we were, you know, doing asset surveillance, we were thinking to ourselves, wait, why is there no tools to monitor this investment? We were thinking, okay, we need actual tech and APIs to actually hook into these places to understand how these borrowers are doing. So Excel phone calls and emails is not an understatement. Like that is literally what people were using just to get these transactions done. And it's $7 trillion. You'd expect a lot more to be there, but that's really where the opportunity is, right? That's why we're so excited about it. And taking all the things that work in public debt markets, public fixed income, and bringing those efficiencies into the private debt markets that are just so antiquated and archaic today. What's the line in the sand between the difference on public debt markets and private debt markets? Like what would be a couple of examples on either side? Yeah, great question. So public debt literally means public company, essentially. Right? Mm-hmm. Although you have Apple, you have Google, you have Exxon, you have all these public companies that generally raise debt capital, especially in the last couple of years since the rates were so low. It made sense, right? I could essentially not dilute myself and still raise capital to be able to finance my growth. And so in that instance, the public company is the borrower. The investment bank would be the underwriter. And then the insurance companies and the pension funds would be the investors. And so that worked great, right? Everyone knew that ratings agencies would step in to say, is this investment great or is this high yield? You had legally required audited financials. So everyone had to report the same way on the data side. You knew who played in that space. And so nice, well-run $52 trillion market. On the private debt side, it's interesting because so many people have probably interacted with private debt before and never actually realized it. So if you've ever taken out a student loan from like SoFi before they became public, that was private debt back in the day, right? Because SoFi is not a bank. And so they need to raise debt capital from somewhere to be able to finance their loan portfolio. If you took out a buy now, pay later uh, loan, loan per se, from a firm prior to them going public, that was also private credit. Right. So everything's small business lending, consumer loans, factoring invoices, litigation finance, equipment leasing, the list list goes on. That is all technically considered private debt. And it's an extremely interesting asset class that just doesn't get enough credit, I think, today. No pun intended. Ah, good one. So the money is is the innovation there, like when the companies you mentioned, Klarna, Affirm, the whole buy now, pay later, SoFi, are they like behind the scenes? Are they innovating in the acquisition of new channels for capital is that i mean are they like like crowdfunding or in some way like where where's the actual innovation happening in the surface area yeah for private debt? on their side their model is i can underwrite and provide and create or issue loans better than a bank can because i know more data around this person right so i know when their shopping habits are i know i'm hooked into their personal bank account so i can determine their credit worthiness and i run a fantastic marketing machine to kind of get these borrowers into the door, borrowers meaning consumers in that instance. Mm -hmm. The innovation that hasn't happened is on the other side. So because they're not a bank, they actually have to raise debt capital from somewhere else. And that has been what has purely been Excel phone calls and emails today. They have a huge capital markets team in-house that essentially is out there trying to raise debt capital, manage it, deploy it, all that stuff. And it's time consuming. It's extremely expensive. It's all those things that you'd expect in really old, outdated industries. You name it, private debt probably has that in its wheelhouse. 
What's the breakdown of private debt for these types of businesses or just private debt in general? Is it, are they running? I mean, I'm much more familiar personally with the VC market, you know, wealthy individuals or funds are contributing to an LP and, or they're an LP in a fund and then investors invest that on equity. But debt is, it's less familiar, less common for startups. What's the, what's the breakdown of the funding sources? Yeah, I would say prior to percent being around, the bulk of the private debt market probably consisted of a lot of credit funds who put this money to work. So you had, you know, Gallup Capital and Terry's, like all these guys who do middle market lending, they do securitizations or whatever it may be. That is sort of the private debt ecosystem, right? But having said that, you know, a lot of these VC-backed companies who need debt capital because they're a lender, for example, right? The, the so firms of five years ago or so fives of six, seven years ago, they need to raise money from somewhere. And they unfortunately can't call up a credit fund and say, hey, give me $150 million because we're going to be great. But my portfolio of loans that I have outstanding is only $2 million. So that mismatch doesn't really work. So they actually have to raise from somewhere else. And prior to us yeah, even being around, the answer to that was oftentimes individuals like family offices who were making an absolute killing, essentially lending out or financing these fintech lenders. And the opportunity to leverage percent as a modern credit marketplace with full on, you know, syndication tools, surveillance tools, structuring tools, just to make it that much more efficient gives these guys a chance to be able to continue to grow into the point where they can actually call up that credit fund after a certain stage and it becomes the right fit for them. They can call up a bank and say, I need you to be my underwriter. That all becomes a lot easier when percent has been in the picture for so long, helping them grow their portfolio to where they are today. And then ultimately we stay in the picture because we've been doing all this asset surveillance, like I touched on earlier, that didn't exist for them for all these years. It just makes a lot of sense to keep us around and help facilitate the process and continue to help them with their transactions going forward. Hmm. So it sounds like the source of capital for the debt markets comes both from private funds that are, are they raising money from wealthy individuals similar to VC or what's their source of, are they going to banks? You've, <laughs> you've hit on probably the most confusing part of private debt, which is that everybody is a borrower, an underwriter, and an investor. So let me explain what that, what exactly that means. Obviously as a consumer or a small business, I'm going to be the borrower, right? I need a loan. I'm going to go to one of these private debt lenders, essentially non-bank lenders for all intents and purposes. The lender themselves, these fintech companies, are underwriters technically, right? Because they're underwriting loans to these, these borrowers. But they're also borrowers because they need to raise right. capital because they're not a bank. But having said that, the underwriters who actually underwrite these transactions, for example, a sell-side bank or even a credit fund, they may also be investors because they just choose to hold it on their balance sheet. But as an investor, they're also borrowers in some respects because they're raising money from LPs, which include the pension funds, the insurance company, the rich families, and things like that. So talk about a very complex, convoluted market that I have had to try to explain to VCs as I'm raising money. That's been a very fun journey. And so we've distilled it down into just think about borrowers, underwriters, and investors, we're going to call it a day. If you want to really dig into it, I'll give you the bullshit field, but probably not a good use of your time. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting, actually. I think, I think it's not, to me, it doesn't seem as complicated because it's, it's like a water flow of borrowers or lenders, you know, each person is, is like receiving money, each entity is receiving money and then redistributing it. So I think of it as like, you have the high level 
capital accumulation sources. That would be like Harvard's endowment. They have large pools of money. And I think of it conceptually as when you have a massive pool of money, you almost have to fractalize it or put it into smaller buckets to be more intelligently distributed. So that's where I would see, okay, we're going to give 10% to this credit fund and they're going to allocate it across, you know, 15 or 20 different debt investments or however many they invest in. And then that money goes to Klarna and then Klarna has operating capital to lend out to its borrowers. So it's almost like diversify. It's a, it seems sort of like a, naturally evolving benefit of diversification in that you have these layers from as capital flows down. So it's interesting. Yeah. yeah is that, is that it's right? definitely interesting. I would say when the moment they ask you to do a top down or bottom up analysis on the market sizing, I'm just like, oh gosh, I'm going to like throw in the towel here because it is very difficult to quantify. Yeah. But at what its core, at its core, what we do know is that this is a $7 trillion market that powered so much of not just the U.S., but the global economy today. And our job is to just make it that much better. Because if we can do that, if we can bring more efficiencies, bring more transactions to market, make it that much more profitable to do, this is not a $7 trillion market, right? This is 9, 10, 11 trillion easy. And that's our job to try and help it get there. Yeah. And do you think of it conceptually as these large pools of money? I think of endowments, maybe wealthy family offices. You know, they're managing budgets between you know, north of a billion, sometimes a few billion. I forget how big Harvard is. What are they like? Double digit billions somewhere in there? I, Definitely there. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and growing. Although this, this recent downturn might have dinged it a little bit, but yeah. 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 And so if I think about where that capital actually ends up, is it, would you say percentage wise, like ballpark 20% end up in debt? 10% in VC, like how, how do you th- sort of think, you know, I, I find it interesting because it's money matters and how, and understanding how money flows in the economy is useful and interesting to a lot of people. And these sources of capital are just so large. They pro I would imagine they have a similar investment thesis because it's kind of representative of risk diversification. And you sort of have the same goals when you're managing funds that large. Do you see any sort of patterns to the maybe rough allocations of large funds like this? I think they are fairly opportunistic. I remember a time when the endowments almost wouldn't touch VC, like venture mm-hmm. investing. They wouldn't back the Andreessen's, the Sequoias of the world oh, that's because they were risk averse, right? They were just like, yeah. this is too much, right? This is totally, we might lose all our money. And so not worth it. And if they had done that, they would have missed out on obviously all of these gains in the VC side of the market in the past few years. So that's changed, right? But having said that, rarely does any of these endowments, for example, go direct into something. They almost always invest in some sort of fund. Mm-hmm. And so as you've got Blackstone, KKR, you know, those, Apollo, those kind of uh, those guys, they raise money from these places all the time, essentially. And so the opportunity for them to be able to get debt exposure is probably because they put it into one of their funds, but that's not the only fund within Blackstone or KKR that they put into. But you can kind of follow what those guys are doing to get almost like a proxy for where endowments are seeing interest. And so, for example, Aries, Blackstone, and KKR all just recently announced venture debt funds. And so that should be very telling as to if they raise the fund, that means it came from somewhere, there's interest, and that's going to be where their focus is going to lie. And so it makes sense, right? Venture debt is going to be a great subsection of the private debt market to be in in the next, I would say, year or two. 
uh, simply because venture venture capital vintages in downturns always do really, really well, right? The ones who essentially get the capital as a startup are the ones who survive. And if they survive, they're naturally almost by default going to win. So if you can double dip on the equity and the debt side, not a bad strategy. And that's the reason why you're seeing a lot of these big players, heavy hitters who've raised from these places, set up venture debt funds to kind of put it to work. And that's squarely within our thesis as well. We actually just launched our first few venture debt issuances on the platform. And we're in the process of bringing on venture debt underwriters to really scale that side of our business because we're seeing it as such a great opportunity in the next year or two. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. When you say you've launched venture debt issuances, does that mean you are raising money from a large pool of money, like family offices or funds, and then you're making you're you're making investment decisions, or you're then like what what does that mean? break me down a little bit? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So let me, I guess, let's give a crash course on, on venture debt first, as a yes. point, because startups traditionally almost always looked at equity financing as their only answer. So they try and raise money from VCs. They can raise it through straight equity, like a priced round, right? And people are buying shares essentially, or they can raise it through convertible debt, which ends up converting into equity anyway. So it kind of is equity. It's it's more equity than debt at the very least. And that converts upon another equity round, exactly, mm-hmm. like an actual qualified financing event. What has come to be more prominent recently is really venture debt, right? So venture debt is almost like a venture-backed company because they raise equity capital. They have a pretty good balance sheet because, you know, they're flecked with cash and they can almost opportunistically raise more debt without dilution, right? So they may lose a couple small percentage points to the debt provider in the form of warrants, but it's worth it if you raise, for example, a $50 million price round, equity round from a VC, and you're topping it off with $10 million in venture debt. You effectively raise $60 million in cash with $50 million worth of dilution. That's a good trade, right, for most startups. So that was, I would say, pre-recession, essentially. Mm. It was viewed as opportunistic financing. 
in this day and age where equity is hard to come by now, right? Like VCs have pared back dramatically from here. A lot of these startups are using convertible debt as a starting point, but if they can't get that, then the next option is venture debt as the other option to be able to kind of continue to either finance their growth, extend their runway, whatever that may be. So a lot of interest from both sides, startups looking for venture debt at this stage, and also venture debt providers, investors, underwriters, et cetera, offering it because in this environment, the rates are really high. They're getting 15, 20% on that at this point in terms of annual returns. That's fantastic. They're owning a stake of the company, also fantastic. So it's a great time as an investor to be investing into venture debt as long as you trust the underwriter and as long as you do the proper diligence on the company that's the startup that's looking to, to borrow, right? So when we launched venture debt on our platform, let's just rewind a little bit. We historically on the platform have done almost like what's called asset-backed finance. So think of it as like baby SoFi, baby Affirm, whatever. They need a couple million dollars. They have hundreds of loans in their portfolio. We're creating a product that's backed by those hundreds of loans, essentially, right? In a corporate debt or venture debt scenario, you're kind of just backing the company. That's mm -hmm. it. Nothing more, nothing less. So you're trusting in the future of that company and the ability to be successful. Now, in that instance, it's actually easier to create that type of product because there's no asset level, loan level structuring. It's just company level structuring of an investment product. So it was very easy for us to go simpler and offer that. But we offered it this year in particular because we saw the opportunity in the market to help startups who need capital and are a lender, for example, and you know don't need a balance sheet or anything like that. And also because it was a natural evolution of taking down more of the private credit market, we do asset backed, we do corporate debt or, or venture debt. We kind of fill out an even larger part of the ecosystem and our workflow tools can be used in all those types of equations and transactions. Mm. And the difference between venture debt and asset backed is whether or not the underwriter is using the assets of the company to make the invest to make a loan or whether they're using the existing capital that the company has raised. Is that right? A kind of a way to look at it. Yeah. So asset backed almost always has some sort of asset that's not the company involved mm. in it. So it could be the loans that they've extended. It could be like franchises, for example, do a lot of securitizations because there's a lot of cash flows coming out of that. So it's not the balance sheet of the business that you're underwriting against. It's almost like the cash flows of the business that it's spitting out or the assets they have that they've loaned out to people, those are collateral, right? That you can essentially use. And you can also take over in the event things go south. So the company may go under, but the assets are still good. Then you know, you're in a good shot, in good shape. In the event of a corporate debt or venture debt situation, if the company goes under, you, there's like nothing else left. Like that, that means that your debt is gone as well, right? You are senior to everybody else, but you're kind of you know, slim picking at that point. So that's really a difference. What is collateralizing the actual debt is it the company or is it the assets of the company and the business that they're in? Okay. So in that latter scenario in the venture debt, if the lender makes an investment in the company, are they, does it, is it realistic for startups sitting out there in series A or maybe even below series seed? Are they considering or should they consider venture debt if they have, you know, 50K on the balance sheet or, you know, some relatively small number, is that an option for them or is it really just VC at that point? So I would say most venture debt providers and us included, but we are bringing on, you know, additional underwriters to supplement and turbocharge what we can do as an underwriter. They tend to not be offering venture debt to help companies survive. It's more to help them thrive, right? Hmm. So if they only have 
50K on the balance sheet and there's no real line of sight into more revenue coming in or it's just sort of steady growth and, you know, ish essentially, you're not going to probably be able to get venture debt. You're going to have to take something very diluted from a VC, either in the form of convertible debt or an equity. But if they have, you know, let's say they just raised a $4 million round of a seed round and they're looking for a million in venture debt, that's not unreasonable, right? So you can take, it was probably a very diluted round in this environment at this point. Taking another million that wasn't diluted, it's, and because you probably wanted five to begin with, is not a bad option. So it's, it rewards those who have been able to kind of tough it out and slog through this fundraising process. And at this point, give them the benefit of the doubt and help them at least continue to grow in a non-diluted form. Mm. Well, that's diluted form. So you can, so it, 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 there's, there's a lot of companies out there now raising money, raising debt on the venture the equity investments that they've just raised. So I go out and I raise 10 million for my startup in equity. I give away 25% of the company, say, you know, it's a $40 million post money valuation. Now I have 10 million in the bank account. It makes sense now companies are taking that and going to a debt lender and saying, hey, I'd like to borrow 2 million, 3 million. And that's going to be somewhere between 10 and 12% monthly payments on that. And the borrower gives me that money, gives me that $2 million because I have $10 million in cash. Is that approximately how it's happening? It's about right. Yeah. yeah. Think about it from the founder's perspective, right? Like, isn't that nice that I actually raised 10 on 40, but that I actually have 12 or 13 in the bank, right? That's, that's not a bad trade. Yeah. But having said that, yeah. Having said that, the, the yield is a little bit higher these days. It used to be probably in the 10, 12, 15% range. It's now closer to 15 to 20, but that's effectively the, the right way to look at it, right? Like founders have that optionality now. And the other time where they could potentially raise venture debt is if they have line of sight into material revenue growth this year. So in many respects, venture debt providers actually underwrite qualitatively, almost as if they were making an equity investment instead of investing or underwriting purely quantitatively versus on the asset backside in private credit, that flip side of the, mm-hmm. the coin that we were talking about that's almost exclusively quantitative. Like if your assets don't deliver and they don't perform and, you know, they, they don't do what they say or thought we were going to do, this is going to be how we underwrite against it. I don't care whether you're nice to me. I don't care whether, you know, I feel like you have the future. doesn't matter whatsoever. But in venture debt, you got to like really like that company or kind of married to that company in some respects. And their future is your future and the future returns on whatever you just gave them. Gotcha. And venture typically has this mentality of, I'm going to invest in 10 companies like your average VC fund, probably seven fail, two sort of break even, maybe slightly positive, and one sort of returns the fund. Is the, is the distribution of venture debt similar to that? I mean, do they have a very, a, a much lower risk tolerance for investment? Because investors, if seven out of 10 of your investments go to zero, it just, you kind of develop this muscle memory of it's okay when, you know, it's, it's commonplace. It's, it's good when most of my investments go to zero is the, what's the psychology on the other side, on the lending side? Yeah, it's interesting. There's also ways to structure venture debt, right? So in some respects, there's some venture debt providers who basically say, you know, you have, I will give you a million dollars, but the moment your balance sheet cash falls below 2 million, I'm taking my million back. Oh, so that's almost like a zero risk trade for them. The yield is low, but still zero risk trade, right? Essentially, it's augmentative capital, but don't screw up. But having said that, a lot of venture debt providers also take warrants and almost always take warrants. 
So think about build almost like building a portfolio around the equity in addition to the debt in the same way that in VC, unfortunately, like I would say, what is it? 95% of the companies don't really make it in some way, shape or form. Those five almost like return the funds, right? Mm -hmm. That remaining 5%. So same thing. If these guys are sitting on a bunch of warrants from dozens of companies, if one or two of them make it, it will return the losses. And it'll also be collecting premiums from the yield every single month that the ones that are not defunct or not defaulted are performing. But that's kind of the way to look at it. So portfolio construction very much applies here as well, which is why, again, in some respects, you're underwriting as if you're going to make an equity investment. That's really the best way to do it. So I want to explain that a little bit more. So if the if the lender for venture debt has a warrant, that means they have the right to invest in the next round or all future rounds, or it depends on, on maybe you explain, what would be a, a typical case for a warrant structure? Yeah. So warrants in some respects is just almost like a way to, or the right to purchase at a certain price point, right? And it's up to them as to when they want to exercise that. But essentially, it's almost always done at a significant discount to what it's currently priced at. So it's at the company's discretion. But also, there is the instances where you can also structure not just warrants, but ownership of the IP in the event things go south as well. So there's a lot of ways that you can kind of throw in these nuances around the structure. But yeah, warrants at its core is just the ability or the right to purchase certain things at a certain price point within that company. Gotcha. Yeah. And it's tip, I, I hear warrants a lot. I mean, I see it a lot in startups where an, an investor will have a warrant typically in the earlier stages, I, I believe, because they want to participate later. So I invest now and then a warrant allows me to make future investments, which is good because, you know, once you're in a company, you want to stay in it. So percent and cadence. So the, the ba- now that we have the kind of outline of the industry and the structure of how deals are done. We went real deep. Yeah, you know, I, it was great. I, I love it because I learned a lot about how how the money flows and what's happening in the market now. Is is the is the general model for percent now is the, you're the platform to allow these venture debt and asset debt investments to occur. So I'm thinking like AngelList, where people can list their startups, their syndicates that sort of review or filter or underwrite, so to speak. Although you don't really use that term in VC. And then the deal is sent out. In many ways, I think of syndicates as like a fancy email list. Like you have a, you have a, you know, it's, it's on the website, but ultimately it's just distribution to investors and sort of a curated, organized, pretty way to look at information. How do you explain it in your own words? How do you explain what you're doing? Yeah, I think AngelList, obviously Republic, all those crowdfunding platforms have done great, right? They, they've been able to give access to this side of the market that normally regular investors didn't have access to. But they are very much in the world of almost what we like to call cap intro, so capital introduction or matchmaking, right? I have somebody who wants something and I have somebody who wants to give something and I'm just going to help them find each other. We are far more complex than that because the products themselves are far more complex than that. So you can almost break down a credit transaction, public or private, doesn't really matter, into like what we like to call our five S's. So sourcing a transaction, structuring it, syndicating it, surveillancing it, and servicing it. So I think of those five S's, I feel like AngelList only does sourcing Mm. in some respects uh, and maybe a little bit of syndication. And so the complexity of what we've had to build is by nature part of the reason why it's, it's in the credit markets. That's essentially what happens. And it's just a lot more complicated. So our workflow tools enable the borrowers, the underwriters, and the investors 
to use some of them, all of them doesn't really matter at the end of the day, right? And that facilitates a much more efficient transaction at the end of the day. So what people see on the platform as an investor is almost like what you'd see on, on AngelList or Republic or anything like that, where you have a deal that comes up, you can look at the documentation, you can look at the structure and things like that. But that's kind of about it, right? Like they don't really see what goes on behind the scenes. But what they get the benefit of is all those things I just mentioned. So for example, for the very first time on, on our platform, you have the ability to compare two private credit transactions side by side with one another. So for example, this small business lender wants to raise $2 million. This small business lender wants to raise $4 million. One's based in the US, one's based in Latin America. The other one has, one has a default rate of 10% on their loans. The other one has a default rate of 15%. This one has, you know, cash controls to ensure if something goes south, we can pull the money. This one doesn't. The ability to actually make relative comparisons has never existed before in private credit, but it's something that we take for granted in public credit because the structures are all the same. Can you compare two startups side by side, apples to apples? Definitely not, right? Mm -hmm. There is no consistent structure among them because they are so almost like unique animals in their own right. On top of that, you know, we have standardized reporting on the surveillance side. Investors get the benefit of that. So we've essentially mapped out the entire private credit universe by asset class, small business lending, consumer loans, all those things I mentioned, so that you can compare one borrower's performance, like asset performance, not structure, asset performance with another's asset performance. The charts look exactly the same. So as an investor, you can make an educated decision around which one you prefer to invest in based on that performance. On these equity crowdfunding sites, can you compare? I don't even get any reporting from these startups after you make the investment. Very minimal, at least, right? Mm -hmm. So this is all parts of the standardization effort that we're pushing here that you just don't see anywhere else. And it's very unique to credit in particular. It's almost like a blessing and a curse. It's possible in credit. It is so painful to do. But we've kind of taken on that mantle ourselves and just, you know, fighting it through it, slogging through it, because if we can use the public debt markets as inspiration, if we know that that's grown to 52 trillion because of standardization and governance and benchmarks and transparency, then we're, our job here is good, right? We're going to be able to make this seven, nine, 11 trillion easily from the work that we do here. Interesting. So it seems like the standardization of the private markets is, is a big deal. What is currently so unstructured in private markets? Are people just, I would imagine even in private markets, people have, you know, they're all going to have accountants, they're all going to be reporting you know, gaps, accounting methods. Is what, what sort of, where's like the thorn in the system and the private markets with how they're unstructured? It's so diverse, right? Think about it this way. If I'm a fintech company or fintech lender that needs a million dollars, first time I've ever gone out for money, I have very little performance to show for it. Then as an underwriter and an investor, I'm going to, there's a lot of risk, right? So I want to throw in the kitchen sink at this company in case something goes south. Somebody who has like a hundred million dollar portfolio who's been around the block before can probably get something rated from a ratings agency has a very different criteria and a very different audience. So we almost break down our market into a three by three matrix where you have small, medium and large transactions. And small borrowers need small underwriters, need small investors, large borrowers, all the way up to large borrowers, need large investment banks who need large like investors, established asset managers, things like that, right? So in this nine-sided market or nine parts of our market, they all had different ways of doing things. And what we've been able to do is essentially look at it in detail and how they transact and figure out what that common denominator is across all of them to ensure that Everything looks and feels very, very similar to one another. 
and they can get the benefit of the workable tools that we create because we've created it to support any type of credit transaction, not just the $1 million one, not just the $100 million one. And the net benefit is going to be that our software and our tools have the ability to help a borrower through their entire debt capital market's life. Their first million, their first 100 million, to hopefully their first 500 million, right? Mm -hmm. We can stay there along the way. And that's because of everything we've built from the technology side in-house. Yeah, it's such a big market. And what you're doing conceptually is bringing transparency and through that transparency, liquidity, and through that liquidity, economic growth. That, that model is not new. I mean, that's Angelus, that's you know, many other marketplaces. Why do you think it's taken so long? Or what's the competitive landscape look like? Like how many other players are doing this, uh, doing this directly, like, and, and how long have they been doing it? Or is it, has it been going on for a long time and I'm just not aware of it? It's funny. The VCs ask us that all the time mm-hmm. when we do a fundraising round. And my, my pushback to them or my challenge to them is really, if you find one, let me know. Because you have to be a little bit crazy to want to do this. But good news is we're crazy. So our goal is to, you know, go after this extremely unstructured, difficult market. The competitor landscape from our perspective is really non-existent, right? Because you almost have to do so much, not just one thing. You have to be the workflow. You have to be the data provider. You have to be the marketplace. You have to be the network effects that need to happen here. And the only reason why we've gotten as far as we have is because we did not try and go after three sides of the market on day one. We were the underwriter. We've been the underwriter for three and a half years, right? right? And so by doing those transactions, we learned every single nitty gritty detail of what it takes to do it, where we would trip up, And we've been able to create the guardrails to ensure that other people don't trip up the way we have. And at the same time, build a reputation for ourselves. So we've done our largest transaction with $144 million. Smallest one was 50 grand. And so we know everybody in that space now. We've built up a name for ourselves so that people trust us. Because if if percent use their tech as client zero to do a billion dollars worth of transactions, then clearly I can probably benefit from that as well. And so now this conversation has been very easy to be able to do that. If I'm here as a software vendor saying, oh, I got this, don't worry, I figured it out. I haven't done a deal before, but trust me, I know what I'm doing. And then they, they see the product and it's like, well, what does this do for me, right? Like you're, you're off on this, you're off on that. And so we've almost dog food our own tech intentionally to be able to ensure that we could hit the ground running when we hit the inflection point in our company's life. And the good news is that inflection point is happening now. Yeah. So, it's the most exciting years to be at percent coming up. And this is, you know, as, as good a start as any, but we'd be able to bring for ourselves here. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like it was just largely B2B, largely relationship driven, and largely just comp- complicated for the average person to get into. And because of that, you have to take a unique approach to get into the market in the first place. It's not like Yelp where they can just launch, you know, restaurants can join, people can look at it, and then you're off to the races. There's reputational onboarding you have to enable. I think if even with AngelList, like their, their onboarding, their process is not as challenging as yours because individual investors, especially angels, I mean, maybe that's why they targeted angels first and not like, you know, series D list is that there's just, they're just, you know, individual people. There's a lot, they can move a lot faster. They don't need to put as much at stake where I, I would imagine what you are doing is getting you know, large, large credit funds to put money through your platform. What, what were the, you mentioned 50K to 100 million. What were the types of deals that you would do previously? Like, how did you think through those? Or how did you sort of quarantine a piece of the market and say, this is what we're going to go after? 
Yeah, it's a lot of incentive alignment and understanding what those incentives are. So when we went out, there is no world where we can go to a multi-billion dollar credit fund and say, hey, look at this. It's a $2 million deal. Like you, you I know you're going to like this, right? That's no. not happening. So we just kind of kept them at bay. We got emails from them saying, hey, like what you're doing, super small, but you know, maybe if you get bigger, come talk to us. So let's, let's have an initial conversation. I just want to poke around. So we focus at the outset on fintech lenders because going back to our earlier discussion, asset backed is much harder than corporate debt, right? So why don't we solve the hard one first and then go after the easy one after that? So we went after fintech lenders because fintech lenders probably would be most keen to trust another fintech company. And so the, the bar is a lot lower. Mm -hmm. So we knew their biggest pain point, let's take workflow side, is just capital, right? Nobody wants to give them the money because they're so young. They don't have experience. Their portfolio is not very built out. And we built that framework with them. As they grow up, that first million dollars became two, became five, became 20, became 25. I think the largest one we ever did was like 28 or something like that. I mean, it's on the platform. It's significantly larger and it grows. And so we've been drafting off of their success into kind of pushing later, later stage from a deal size standpoint and learning with the nuances and the differences between these small deals versus the medium sized deals until it got so large that we did, you know, $144 million transaction, right? Mm -hmm. And that was kind of our first foray into that larger side of the market. So a lot of experience, a lot of learning, and that's kind of helped us get to where we are today. And we use those initial early guys, the small side of the market to help inform how we get to the later and later stage until now we can have a constructive conversation with those multi-billion dollar credit funds because the tooling and the workflow that we built has started to almost like veer into the territory that they're very familiar with. And the pain points that we're citing because we've done it ourselves are very familiar and ring very true with them. That in itself has made this all work a lot smoother. And so it was three years of difficulty, three years of teaching VCs what we're doing because we had a vision ahead, but the actual reality was almost like very different. One's pitching a infrastructure for private credit markets and capital market solution. The other one is a tech-enabled investment bank. We started off as a tech-enabled investment bank and are becoming an infrastructure solution. That pivot, that evolution, that realization of that vision is hard to grasp as a seed stage company, yeah. essentially. And there's a lot of bets that need to happen to believe that we can pull it off. And now the story and the tech, it all starts to look a lot better and, and looks like that vision's coming to life. It's a lot more believable at this point which is why VCs have become more, much more interested in what we're doing. And we're expecting, you know, the, the next round and the next few years to be the most exciting in our life. What was the 140 million investment in? That was a whole business securitization for a public company. So I was talking about franchises before, right? You can actually securitize or use franchise royalties as like an asset to, to back it. And so that was a interesting deal. We had done a $40 million deal with them and then we did another $40 million deal and the largest one for 144 was actually joint book ran with Jefferies. So when you talk about getting into the right realms of people to, to work with and the right institutions, definitely that was a good kind of putting our foot out there, getting our name out there, like stamping our flag in the ground of we're here, right? Mm -hmm. We've arrived because we can do this type of deal. And, and did anything in, in, when you reflect back on it, was there any like network that you were in or your partner was in or something, because it sounds like the business is or was in particular so heavily relationship driven from the capital you needed to raise to even be able to make these investments. But how did you sort of crack in that that personal relationship network business? Yeah, so I spent a whopping two and a half years in traditional finance. You did. None of which was in fixed income, really, yeah. to be honest. So this had to come for our team, right? And our team deserved all the credit here. 
And also a lot of, I think, like I give them a lot of credit for actually taking the plunge and leaving what would be a very cushy banking capital markets job to join me here, right? And so everyone on the senior leadership team has come from traditional finance, either on the market data side as product engineering, naturally should, or on the almost like investment banking debt capital markets side. And so just as a reference point, you know, our head of capital markets used to run DCM Americas, debt capital markets Americas at Credit Agricole. Our head of credit used to lead the entire ABS and CL, uh, asset back securization and CLO division at DBRS Morningstar. Our president used to be at UBS in the debt capital market space. So you need that type of domain expertise and that network to really kind of get this off the ground. And so this is not one where really talented engineers can just come together and build this. You need to actually know where the pain points are and sort of almost be effectively a product manager without really being a formal product manager to drive the development of the product in a way that institutions, investors, and, and anybody in this transaction cycle would be open to adopting. So all those people sound very expensive. When you're starting off, you know, you have your co-founder, are you raising money to hire them? Are you like pulling off one person in particular, giving them a big equity stake that has a bunch of relationships in the credit markets and sort of using that to get the flywheel going? Like how, what was the, I mean, it's great now you guys raise a bunch of money and you could hire these folks, but how did you crack the chicken and the egg initially? It's a whole lot of selling in the vision of the future that we're building towards here, right? And, you know, the fact of the matter is nothing is ever as easy as it seems to the outside. Nothing's ever as, everything takes longer mm-hmm. than you expect. Everything takes more money than you expect. That's almost like the, the benchmark you should be operating under. And so given that's the case, I, again, I give my team, the senior leadership team, a lot of credit for will, being willing to take that plunge, being willing to take a massive haircut in terms of salary to be able to join us here. And it's been, hopefully, I hope they find it rewarding. I hope yeah. they're excited about the future, but it was a bet that they had to make, right? And it, it's one that has continued to pay off these days. So it sounds like you raised small seed funding. Did you have a co-founder? No, though no. so this is essentially solo founder with my old consulting company. Gotcha. And so the consulting company used to help other founders build their companies. So we had a team, mm-hmm. per se, to get the company off oh, the ground. Oh, okay. That's, that's helped me explain it. Because I'm like, okay, something has to happen. You either have to raise money with just a solo person, you know, or like send a ton of cold emails and somehow convert people and get a flywheel. Like I'm always interested in the flywheel on complex markets because it's, it's just interesting to learn, you know, other people can use the same lessons. So you had a consultant. Yeah, I, had a, I had the benefit of a, a 10 person team that awesome. how to do product marketing, branding, engineering to get the initial product off the ground, to get the branding down right for Cadence and to look and feel bigger than we actually were. Yeah. And that allowed us to really kind of get to, to where we are today as the, the core foundation. Having said that, you know, we've rebuilt the entire tech yeah. stack from start, top to bottom at this point. But in terms of raising seed funding, pre-seed funding, et cetera, it, it's very, very helpful. What was the consulting business doing? What were you selling to who? Yeah, so I had actually quit finance in 2012, 2013 with a vow to myself to never do anything in finance ever. Really? Which is obviously the most, the most famous last words I could have possibly ever told myself because capital markets, fintech is probably the most complicated yeah. of all the fintech things to do. So the New York tech scene was kind of, you know, burgeoning in, in 2012, mm-hmm. 2013. And so I said, you know what? Everyone's doing this startup thing. How hard could it possibly ever be? And I realized in like six months how hard it actually was. I tried to do a startup. I failed spectacularly. I lost all the cash I had ever saved up in finance, including for my parents wow. as well. And I'd like to think I do my best work when our back is against the wall. Uh, but at that point, you know, I was 
broke and had to afford rent and had to afford food. And so literally, I just put myself up on Odesk, which is now called Upwork. And I had a bunch of people reach out and say, including VCs, who said, can you help me with pitch decks? You look like you have, you know about startups. You look like you have a good design sense. Let's give this a shot. And that's how that consulting company came to be. It was a pitch deck development company. Straight awesome. Telling the narrative, doing the design, finance background came into play here. I could do a financial model. And all that together allowed these companies to raise money. And the beauty of it was when they raise money, they're plucked with cash. They're very great. Mm. Helping them get there. And so they asked me, can you do app development? Can you do mobile app designs? Can you do branding? And I was like, oh yeah, I got a team to do all those things basically. And you just learn, mm-hmm. like you grow and you develop. And I think I almost encourage every founder to not just one, go through corporate life at least once, but two, to actually run a services business because mm-hmm. it is so different than having tons of VC capital your way. You actually need to learn how to turn a profit. You need to learn what margin actually means and what that impact is on your bottom line, how to hire in a margin constrained environment. It taught me a ton, but the company did decently well, right? So at our peak, we had about 15 people. We, you know, I think we cleared almost a million in revenue annually. And so Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All good, but, and I had a couple of good case studies coming out of that. One of them was BlockFi in the crypto world. Yes, yeah, I saw you're an investor. So, Course, yeah. yeah, yeah. First angel investor, first angel tech oh, wow. company okay. because Zach, oh yeah, Zach was a single founder at the time. Uh-huh. He hadn't even met Flory yet. And he had the the name for BlockFi, great name. He had bought the domain, great domain. And uh, he had the idea, right? And so I met him and I was like, I think you got this figured out. So I'm going to help you out as best I can. Why don't you come to our office? I'll park you next to our team. And then you can get the pitch deck done. You can get the marketing website done. You can get, you know, parts of the V1 of the product. And I'll introduce you to investors because I know VCs, I've built up a network of VCs over the years because they want to invest in my clients. And so I introduced them to Consensus and that was their first lead investor. I was the first- No way. The, yeah, the, the logo is still ours. Actually, they've just modernized a, quite a bit. You built uh, but the it Consensus was logo? No, no. Blockfi logo. logo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's still ours. They just cleaned it up. I ate a flatter and like all <laughs> that stuff. Uh, but it's, you know, that it was great, right? It was awesome to see him be successful. And at that point, Zach was the one that made me go, interesting. So I can clearly know how to build companies. I'm a lot more humble than I was in 2012, 2013. And I feel like I know VCs enough to be able to kind of get a couple to, to come my way. And so for the right idea, the right time, I would love to do something the old-fashioned venture-backed way instead of a margin business. And so that was when Percent really kind of came to life at that point. We came together as a team, the consulting company. And said, what are the gaps in the market? You know, where are the biggest pain points? And we saw that alternative investment landscape thinking short, long duration, high minimum, same yielding investments in the same way that you have no brand loyalty to Uber or Lyft. You just pick whichever one's cheaper. Then people will go to the one that fits their needs. Mm-hmm. And our thought was retail investors would want shorter duration. They'd want lower minimums and they obviously want the same yields. And that's really how it all came together. It's awesome. What do you think of DeFi and crypto? Is that an influential part of the credit markets today in any way? Or do you see it being coming 
somehow influential in the private investments that are happening. Like caveat it by saying that DeFi today, I believe, only has a structure where you have to put up 100% collateral of what you're lending. So when people say DeFi, there's a lot of excitement, but to me, it doesn't seem highly effective if you have to stake 100% of the collateral because there's you know, no risk on a AMA, a, a automated market maker. What are your thoughts on crypto's influence in maybe credit markets, but maybe more broadly, just generally like access to liquidity? Yeah, I think it's actually sometimes over 100%, right? But yeah, like over collateral lending, which is crazy. So, uh, man, this question. We've tried so hard to be a blockchain company. Really? Like over the years. It, it, oh, yeah. I mean, Coinbase is on our cap table. Morgan Creek's on our cap table. Like we have a number of blockchain companies and investors on our cap table because of sort of what we thought was an opportunity, mm-hmm. right? So in addition to, you're going like down memory lane for me here. In addition to the alternative investment landscape that we thought, oh, opportunity there. In 2018, there was a whole talk about security tokens, right? So we operated under the promise or premise that we would be creating regulated security tokens for all of these issuances, because that's going to be the next big thing. Clearly, we are now in 2022 and security tokens are, are not a thing, right? Not a big thing by any stretch of the imagination. So as we saw that, the writing on the wall for security tokens, we ended up saying, okay, so in the same way that we need to find things that people actually want to do, what would be the lowest hanging fruit to get someone to adopt the kind of blockchain type stuff, right? And the one thing that we thought was, why don't we mint an Ethereum contract for every single one of these issuances? So you could almost have like a publicly anonymous cap table of all the money that was put in, what did they invest in, what was the interest that got paid out? And it was like kind of cool, right? Like you could, anyone can go on Etherscan and just find our stuff. And people didn't have to have their own wallets. There's no keys because it's only a reflection. It's not the real thing. Unfortunately, by the time a few, maybe a year or so after that, it cost us $1,000 to submit the ETH contract. And it was, we were making like $500 in revenue <laughs> off that transaction. So I was like, okay, we got to stop this. This is not going to work anymore. Put a pause then. And then we thought, well, retail, no good. Why don't we go institutional? And so one of those, that $144 million transaction, that was the third one. The first one we did was for 40 million. And that one, we actually were the first ever company to get a digital asset mentioned and used in a ratings agency report. And so that was a rated, rated deal. I think Forbes, Michael Del Castillo covered this, but it was essentially showing up in there as like, there is a mirrored transaction on chain for all of this. Now that was all well and good. You could see almost like the cash flow out from the investor into the reserve accounts by the trustees. You can then see it flow into the, uh, the issuer or the borrower's account. You can see the securities change hands. Like it was kind of cool, right? We asked, you know, obviously everyone wants to do everything on chain. So we asked the investor, is there any chance you could transact to USDC so we can make this, you know, fully on chain? And they literally said, if we do this in USDC, I'm leaving this deal. And so we're like, no, 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 no. don't worry about it. Like USD, straight up, no, no, nothing different. Like, don't worry about this blockchain thing over here. Not relevant, right? And so we tried. Uh, but clearly that didn't really go anywhere. And finally, uh, recently actually, and Bloomberg just did a piece on this as well on this, uh, we actually helped create or helped launch uh, the first ever credit default swap for private credit markets uh, using DeFi. And so we partnered with a company called Unzen, which was founded by one of our investors who've been nudging us into the crypto space. And essentially all it is, is it's a treasure reserve that is essentially a cash, right? Stable coins and whatnot, where there's real world interest 
feeding it, uh, feeding the treasury reserve from our products that are generating that, that yield. And then there is DeFi yields or interest being generated on that side where people are staking things to be able to get it to work. Now, unfortunately, this launched, or maybe fortunately, this launched in June of 20.2. And so the DeFi side is not really up and running yet because DeFi is not really up and running right now. And so we are the only side that's, that's powering and increasing and adding to that treasure reserve. But, you know, I think, look, at the end of the day, I feel like DeFi innovation is interesting. I think it's going to get regulated. And the moment it gets regulated, a lot of the reasons why DeFi has been so successful is because it's been operating in an unregulated environment. There's a lot of ways to make money and generate yields in that instance. When regulators come in, there's going to be a, a day of reckoning, I think, for a lot of these companies. And it's going to cause liquidity to fall dramatically from there. And at that stage, what is the innovation that's remaining? That is going to be what changes the traditional finance landscape. A lot of things that they're doing today just do not fly in traditional finance and it won't fly under regulation. There's pockets of things that may be interesting, I think, and we'll see what that is, mm -hmm. right? But that's when that's what I'm most interested in looking at. And it's the reason why we're so interested in what Antid was doing or helping them create it. Because we always want to have our ear to the ground and what the latest innovations is and try to do something that could bring innovations. And I think what they're doing is, right? Doing a credit vault swap for private credit markets never existed before using the best of both worlds, that's a real-world use case. And I think that is, that's what we like to see. If, if, if more U.S. regulations do come out in the, in the near term uh, regulating DeFi, do you think that will have a industry-wide, like crypto, all cryptocurrencies will be negatively impacted by that as it sort of stifles innovation by default? I think if they ever wanted to be beyond what it is today, which is a lot of scamming, a lot of grifting, a lot of Ponzi schemes with the occasional real world use case, if they ever want to get beyond that, right, then it's going to take regulation. I would argue for the true purists out there, they want this to be a big thing. They want this to change the world, right? When I first saw crypto in 2017, 2018, thanks to BlockFi, actually, my first impression was stable coins are amazing. Like that is actually a real, real use case here, right? Can you make a lot of money off of that? Mm, probably not. Yeah. But in terms of being able to essentially allow somebody who is in a country that has a ton of really high inflation, buy or swap into USD digitally and hold on to it and then swap it back as needed to be able to kind of make purchases in their home country that have now insanely inflated. That's a great use case, right? That's a real benefit to the world. And I love that. Now, the, the, I think crypto purists or like the, you know, uh, DeFi, uh, crypto Twitter, whatever you want to call it, that audience is going to say, well, they can track everything you're doing. That's like, I mean, yeah, that's kind of the, what happens when you go digitally. That is sort of the, the nature of the situation, but think about the benefits, right? So if you're here to change the world, you can change it in that way, but that's going to be regulated. Yeah. I mean, you know, central bank digital currencies are going to be very regulated, but it is something that I think has dramatic implications for how money flows cross country, across countries, internationally, remittances, all that market can be upended with stable points, which will be very, very exciting. To see. So do you, is your general disposition that, that, that given that's the correct implementation of regulation, that it'll be net positive in reducing the scam artists out there, but the trade-off for more government intervention will be worth it? I think so. Yeah. yeah I mean, look, traditional finance is outdated, right? There is a world where, sure, the entirety of securitization and private debt can be on chain. We're very far away from mm -hmm. that. We need a whole lot of adoption and regulation to be there and get there. But 
in a, if you were to think pure utopia, optimistic landscape here, that's possible, right? With, with it. And so, you know, what DeFi can do, what crypto and blockchain can do is a significant step up from Excel phone calls and emails, yeah. right? And a lot of like trusting counterparties. So if you think about that as our core problems today and what we're trying to improve upon, that in theory, yes, it can get there, but it is going to take that regulation to weed out all of this, you know, invest here and then I'll pump it up and then I'm going to dump it and I'm going to tell you to hold it. Like that is, that's got to go yeah. away. And the public equities markets, like the stock market has gone through like over a hundred years of this type of regulation to get it to where it is today. And it's still not perfect, right? There is still ways to manipulate it that people are, are doing. And so when you think about this being super high frequency, like there, these guys are speed running through a hundred years of regulation, essentially in all the scams that are popping up, all the frauds, all the hacks, like it's all happening because there's no regulation. And so if they want to speed run through it, they'll get the same endpoint and it will be a good endpoint for the industry. They just, you know, a lot of people may not like well, it. Do you, what do you think about the reaction that <clears throat> maybe it's not maybe all these hacks and these scams are not happening because of there's no regulation. It's this happening because there's so much potential in the technology. And through that potential, it's like early internet had a ton of porn and illegal drug and weapon sales because of the technology potential. I think it's the industry tends to react like a living organism that if there were no regulation in theory, would there be a reaction to those scams and those hacks? Absolutely. You know, the companies are massively incentivized that, you know, even the, the DAOs out there that are completely decentralized, all they want is to maintain a safe and secure and sometimes anonymous, but depending on the value proposition, service to people. So I think there's like a naturally evolving immune system that kind of, okay, hack happened. Well, we could build this patch and, you know, this scam happened. Okay. We have this transparency marketplace rating system. So there's, there is a maybe an underappreciated market reaction to the negative things that happen. And those negative things that happen, they strengthen the system. You know, you need hacks, you need scammers, because then that allows you to build resilience into the market. Regulation, I have mixed views on because I'm, I'm always interested to see what the reaction is from the market to solve those problems in the, in the, in the short term. The thing you think people generally can't clearly see is the negative impacts from innovation that doesn't happen when you have overregulation. So that's, you know, that's just like, how do you see what's not happening because you have too many rules? And so I'm, you know, it's easier to see like the Celsius crash and the hack here and the scam here. But how do you see the, the Coinbase that didn't get built because of some rule or regulation that's in place? So that's my general yeah, attitude. It's, it's a fair take. I mean, to be honest, like one of the things that, definitely needs to happen is actual enforcement of securities law, mm. because if you can actually, most of the things that have been issued are securities at the end of the day, right? Or commodities. Most of them are not commodities though. So if we go into that pretense that most of them are securities, they have to be filed and you can be eligible or you could be up for securities fraud. Like that will deter a lot of people just inevitably. Mm. Right. And so, you know, nobody wants to go to jail for this. They want to be able to kind of get away scot-free. And if regulators aren't here, then let's just do what we can. Right. The concept of insider trading and front running and dark pools. Like these are things that have been used to run rampant in the public markets and have now been tamped down a little bit. And that will prevent these pumps and dumps, these skyrocketing prices and the free fall that you see where you can just get completely wiped out. Algorithmic stable coins do not work. Like I, I called that from the really? beginning. They will never work. 
Yeah, they will never work because there's always incentives are all screwed up. Yeah. Someone's always going to try and break you, yeah. right? And if you're not going to be pegged to something that's real, that's a real asset, it's going to it's going to teeter. And it's, when it teeters, it's going to fall because the trust is gone. So like that would have never passed in a securities law type of world, right? Now, when it comes to the things that, you know, like with the what's not going to get built, right, in, in the events of this, I think there needs to be a good understanding of what is a feature and what's a bug. Mm-hmm. So in this instance, the hacks happen way more frequently in, in the crypto world than they do in the traditional finance world from a frequency basis, I would say more so, or per- percentage basis, more so than dollar value and more so than number of times. And it's because there is no reversibility. Right. Yeah. In this sense, like it kind of just happens. And so everyone has to agree that we're going to walk it back, right? Like we can get consensus around, let's just fork this and that this becomes the new feature and then let's ignore whatever happened over there. I mean, the other way to do it is just to not make things irreversible and just have guardrails in place to block it because it looks like fraud or it looks like a hack or it looks like something can happen. And that's what the banking system has done, mm-hmm. right? There is checks in place to ensure that you meant to do this. There are things that happen that basically say, yeah, this doesn't look right. This doesn't feel right. Let me put a stop to it. Let me confirm this. And then we'll go from there. So all of those things are things that, you know, I would say they're features and not bugs. In that instance, that actually add value to the ecosystem that you just don't really have in crypto and DeFi right now that I think comes with regulation as well. And you're just not really able to see. Yeah. Yeah. Valid point there. It's a super interesting topic. Nelson, are you actively writing or tweeting or is there anybody in particular, or any books that you want to throw out as places that were inspiring to you over the recent years? Yeah, I think it's, oh, let me just, oh, I get this. There we go. Try to get the background. Back. Oh, I have to edit this part out. Sorry. That's fine. Could also leave it off. What does it do? At this point. You want to leave it off? Yeah. Okay. Unless you want to watch something, put on some. All good. Yeah. So in terms of things that I've been reading, I actually do keep up with podcasts pretty regularly. It's fun, right? I think it actually gets you a good pulse check on on the world. I love deep dives that the Acquired podcast does. I think they just, you know, go really, really deep into companies that you would never see. I thought their breakdown of like Taiwan Semiconductor was fascinating because one of those companies that powers everything we do today and you just don't really, you know, see otherwise. I would say in terms of book I've been reading. Let's see, what have I done recently? I read Tony Fidel's book recently, the guy who created the the iPhone or part of the iPhone. And that was an interesting read, if only for the fact that he evolved from corporate life or startup life into corporate life into back into startup life. And you kind of talk through that journey. And in that instance, I felt like I lived through a lot of those things as well. And it was like extreme, almost like relatable to a fault. And so point where it was kind of scary, but I do recommend most of our team members read it as well. And then something that guides us and is part of required reading for us as a firm is Hamilton Helmer's Seven Powers. And that is just kind of a good business breakdown of how you can always stay on top of what you're doing and how you can continue to evolve and adapt in a way that, you know, no one else may be seeing or doing. And so using that as a framework for what our strategy looks like going forward has been great, right? So I think there's like five books that are required reading now for joining percent. And we, we asked them about in our one-on-ones that happened periodically a few weeks later, but it is, you know, helpful yeah. at the end of the day. And those are things that I, I always definitely recommend. Awesome. Dude, this is fun. I'm glad that we got a chance to come on and talk again and congrats on your recent progress. And one day we'll make it a third conversation. That'd be great. Looking forward to that. Like, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. 
If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.